Hello there, FBI radio listener, Joey Watson here. You are listening to Out of the Box every Thursday from midday to one. I get to spend an hour trawling through the stories of one guest and the records which have defined them. Today, rapper, poet, playwright, novelist, Omar Musa. When Omar was growing up in the regional New South Wales town of Queanbeyan, the son of a theatre historian and Malaysian poet, he slowly fell into the world of the arts, driven partly by an obsessive desire to create and partly by the injustices he saw in, the, in Australia's combustible society. It would be the, base, the basis for a life spent creating in all forms, the one that would take him from CD record labels in London to otherworldly cultural experiences in California and back to his family roots in Borneo. As a rapper, Omar has collaborated with some of the greats, Orisho, Kate Tempest, Marky Bassey, and Akala, to name a few. Beyond that, his poetry books and novels have both been widely acclaimed. He's currently finishing a run of his self-written and self-performed plays since Ali died at Sydney Festival. Omar, thank you so much for being here on Out of the Box. My pleasure, my friend. Omar, I, I had in my introduction uh, a reference to you uh, as an activist, which uh, you uh, quickly said was not a title that you usually apply to yourself. Can you tell me why that's something that you avoid? Oh, look, man, I'm just... You know, I'm a flawed dude who makes flawed art. I put that work out there and I think it would be over the top for me to claim to be an activist when there's people out there working with young people on a daily basis, young people at risk, people on the front line. You know, those are activists, you know. I mean, I know that my work changes, you know, people's lives and maybe the world in a very, very minuscule ways and maybe changes the way that people think about the world. So, of course, you could define that as activism in some way or artivism or something, but I don't know, man. Like, I think it's sort of too self-aggrandizing, like, for an artist to, to claim that when they're in my, in my position. Like, maybe if I was working with young people every single day, getting them to make art. But, you know... I put my stuff on the stage and on the page and then just let it float out there in the world. So I think that's a bit different. Um, I want to start this story some years before you were born. Your, your mother, a theatre historian, took a trip to Malaysia in the 70s. What happened? Yeah, she um, got the chance to become the, the head of drama at the University of Science Malaysia, which is in Penang on the island up there in Peninsula, Malaysia. And um, she learned how to speak Bahasa fluently. She was living in a Chinese fishing village. And then she got the opportunity to help, uh, well, to direct the first ever Malay language version of Hamlet by William Shakespeare. And they were auditioning for the lead role for Hamlet. They couldn't find the right guy until a handsome, suave guy from Borneo, very mysterious <laughs> man with long wavy locks and an open shirt walked in. And, you know, he, he eventually became the first Malaysian Hamlet. Uh, he also then went on to, you know, a far more auspicious role than that, to become my father. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and Omar, your, your father uh, was Muslim, and, but your mother was not. Um, was that a factor in their eventual marriage? Oh, I mean, look, uh, my mother converted to Islam um, 
when they got married. And that, that was by law as well. Like to, you know, there's very strange race politics over in Malaysia. And uh, if you want to marry a Malay man or a Malay person, you have to um, convert to Islam because Malayness and Islam are conflated into one race and religion over there by mm. law. So it's kind of a real complicated issue. Some years later, uh, you came into the world, um, as we mentioned, the son of a Muslim father, British-Australian mother, living in the regional New South Wales town of Queanbeyan, not far from Canberra. Can, can you paint a picture of Queanbeyan in the late... This is the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a town that's kind of the butt of jokes in Canberra. You know, people call it struggle town, like working-class place, uh, you know, drug addiction, alcoholism and stuff like that. But it's... it's it wasn't defined by that, you know. It's like it's a really beautiful place as well, a beautiful country town with a river running through it and bushland all around. And I feel really privileged that I grew up there with heaps of space. Uh, it was also a really multicultural place, you know. I grew up with uh, all sorts of people from around the world in the flats, whether it be from the Balkans or the Pacific Islands or Aboriginal kids, and that was always really exciting. You know, we came from all these disparate places, but we somehow forged little communities for ourselves. And I've always been really, really proud of being from Queanbeyan. And I, I want to ask you about that because perhaps nothing um, better demonstra demonstrates the multicultural spirit of uh, Queanbeyan than uh, it's a very special relationship that your father had with the father of one of your friends. <laughs> they, were, they were chess partners, right? Can you, can you tell me about their friendship? Oh, yeah, well, that's funny. Like, um, you know, I grew up with a whole lot of kids, um, you know, from around the world. But in particular, like, there, there were some neighbours of ours that from were from Macedonia, you know. They'd come over, I think maybe even under, like, refugee status of some sort, but definitely after the Balkan Wars. And um, and somehow, like, my dad became really good mates with, with a Macedonian guy, and, uh, and they would sit on the steps of the flats, like, yarning for hours, talking about the similarities in their upbringings, of course, the differences as well. But the guy knew a lot about Islam too, because you know the Ottomans had been through Macedonia. So you got, I've been to Macedonia, and there are pla there's even a, a church that has a crescent on top of it where Muslims are allowed to pray as well. So they connected over that. But then also, um, me and a friend <laughs> broke into a car and stole this antique chess set, and uh, and we we had a real uh, dodgy little scam with it, you know, back in the day. <laughs> uh, but we ended up giving giving this chess set to to the two fellas to the Macedonian guy and, and to my dad and they would sit there playing chess for ages and then arguing because they had different rules, you know. And my dad was always saying like that these Macedonian rules were real sneaky and that he would <laughs> he would change that he was like he changes it as he plays, you know. <laughs> I love it. Um, it was it was through your father that you first encountered your lifelong idol Muhammad Ali. Can mm. can you tell me about that? Man, well, it was kind of crazy because it happened at a time when I think I'd just experienced some really hectic racism in the schoolyard. And, and you know, it seems weird now because I'm so proud of my, my brownness. But, you know, at the time I, I went home to my parents and I told them I wish I wasn't brown anymore. You know, I told them I wish I was white like the, the other kids um, who, who seemed like real Aussies, you know. And, um, and my parents told me not to think like that, um, you know, to be proud of my skin, proud of being Muslim. But it didn't sink in till... A little while later, my dad started showing me these VHS tapes of Muhammad Ali, and he was just so proud and fierce and funny and cool. You know, he was like the coolest guy I'd ever seen. And he said he was the greatest. He said he was the prettiest. But I knew even at that young age, what he was really saying was that that black was beautiful, you know, in a world that told him it wasn't. And so that affected me at that time. That really, 
hit me in the gut and I realized like I could take some of that attitude and that strength and that bravery from him and also that pride and that self-empowerment. So, um, and, and not only that, Muhammad Ali, was he had love for, for Malaysians. Like he had, he'd been to Borneo as well. He'd fought in Malaysia and he was Muslim. So, you know, he was like my role model and, and kind of a circuit breaker, you know, at that, at that crucial juncture in your life when you could internalize racism, you could internalize self-hate. Someone comes along from the other side of the world, so different to you, and you just see some grainy footage of him and it changes your life, changes the way you think about things. Wow. Uh, with, with Muhammad Ali as your inspiration, you, you start living this um, almost dual life as a teenager, growing up in a third-story flat while attending the elite Canberra Grammar School and then the, the ANU, the Australian National University. Mm -hmm. How did you navigate those two worlds? I mean, look, I, I always feel like I've been in between worlds. You know, I'm half white, half Asian, like grew up really religious in a very secular Australia that then sort of felt like it turned quite anti-Islamic. Uh, but also class-wise, yeah, for sure, man. Like, um, you know, I'm very aware of my privilege going to a prestigious school. You know, my mum my worked really hard to send me there, but that's a privilege a lot of people didn't get. But then I would come home and be hanging out in the flats and you'd be seeing some really wild stuff and, and sort of things that maybe... Uh, other people that I went to school with weren't privy to, uh, and so I always. What felt, sort of stuff is that? Oh, I mean, like you know, early '90s, man. Like, I don't know if you were alive then, but <laughs> <laughs> but but you know, the the like now, ice is the big thing or seen as an epidemic. It was heroin back then. So like, you know, you would see needles in the front yard of the flats. You know, you would hear domestic violence a lot. See a lot of violence um, around you, and so it was almost like. If a world is a relative thing, you know, I, I felt like I was bouncing between completely different worlds. And, and then added to that was the fact that we didn't have much money, but I was really privileged because my mum was an, uh, she ran a small arts magazine. So she would get free tickets to the theatre, to um, art galleries, concerts. So I was really privileged in that way, like compared to the people I grew up with. Like I would go to the theatre like three times a week. Mm -hmm. So it was like a really weird particular upbringing and i think all of that sort of comes out in my work like you know you can't quite pin it down sure and uh, omar your, your mother who who you were close with at one stage had a falling out with your distant auntie marge who lived in queensland and this ended up being quite influential in the way that you remember your childhood can you tell me about their relationship oh it was my my grandmother and her sister um so uh they were you know, soul to the earth, Irish, Australian, working class, you know, <laughs> Protestant. Um, in fact, it was really funny. Like, they were so Protestant that, like, I remember when my mum married my dad, my grandma sort of leaned over and goes, well, at least you didn't marry a Catholic. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so a Muslim was even better than that. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, they, they had had some, like, completely ridiculous petty falling out over a uh, an inheritance like some old scratched up fiddle you know mm. and then neither of them even played the violin but then they ended up not talking for 20 years because of this stupid thing and um and my dad when he got to australia like he couldn't believe that because he you know we, we've got a really interesting background in borneo that maybe i'll talk to you about later but uh, you know, my grandma was married a few times, like I've got so many cousins and everything. And he was just like, hold on, the two, two sisters haven't spoken in 20 years? Like, this is crazy. You can't live like this. And so my dad, um, he, he orchestrated a meeting between them. He said, we're going to drive up to Sydney, 
pick up grandma and then drive all the way to Brisbane and sort of make them have a reconciliation, you know. And then the two sisters met again. Uh, they never really got along that well, but they did reconcile and they'd like talk to each other every, uh, you know, a few times every year. And then it was really weird though, because like even though they were 10 years apart, uh, when, when they finally passed away, it was only within like a few days of each other, I think, or even just like less than a week. And it was like they were still connected with some invisible string. Um, and so even though they saw my dad as an outsider, he was Asian, he was brown, you know, he was different like to what they were used to. He was the one that, that forced that kind of reconciliation. So it was kind of cool. What do, you, what do you want to play for us first, Omar? Well, this is going to seem a bit disconnected, but uh, when we did this road trip, and actually every road trip we do in this beaten up uh, Datsun 200B, uh, we would play this tape that on one side, it was um, world music, uh, what was his name? Salif Keita from Mali, Malian singer. On the other side, it was the Gypsy Kings. And we would just flip it constantly in the car, back and forth, back and forth. And so one of the songs was Bem Bem Maria by the Gypsy Kings.
That tune was Bem Bem Maria by the Gypsy Kings, brought into FBI Radio today by Omar Musa. He is a poet, rapper, novelist, playwright, and my guest on Out of the Box today. Omar, at the age of 19, you'd been living in Queanbeyan your whole life and desperately needed a change. Tell me about the plan you hatched. Oh, man, I was just, like, really stuck in a rut, you know. I'd been there living in Queanbeyan and Canberra my whole life, around the same people, you know, good friends, like, even to this day. But, you know, when you're just kind of stuck in the mud, like, stuck in a morass. And I was like, man, I, I need a change. So I was hanging out one time with my mate Dan, who was a footy player, and um, we we hatched up this plan that maybe we could go on exchange to California together. And I'd never really wanted to go to the States. Like, I always kind of thought, oh, man, it's just this is going to be the same as Australia or, or just the same as the stuff that I see on TV. Um, but I ended up going and Dan couldn't come because he got a professional rugby contract. So suddenly I was like forced to, to move overseas for the first time by myself. And at the last minute, the University of California changed it from going to San Diego to going to Santa Cruz up in Northern California. I didn't know anything about it, but I kind of moved up there um, completely ignorant and I ended up going to a minority college uh, on campus which was only for African-American, Mexican-American, Asian-American and LGBTQI uh, residents. A minority college? What's what's the politics of that? Why why does a minority college exist? Well, super, super interesting actually because I'd never heard of that and I, to be honest, I kind of put it on my thing as my fifth preference just as a joke because I was like, what the hell is this? You know, I'm a minority, all right. <laughs> and uh, and then I found out that what had happened was that, as far as I know, in the 60s, two um, African-American students on campus who were Black Panthers, uh, they felt like they weren't safe uh, on, on campus or they didn't have like a safe space or something like that, uh, a place they could feel comfortable. And so it started uh, kind of for them and like for the black students and then eventually became became bigger and, and more encompassing. And when I got there, I wasn't sure what was going to go on, but it was actually by a mile the coolest college. Wow. Paint, um, a, paint a picture for me. 19 years of age, showing up in Santa Cruz, first man, time in the States. It was really interesting. What have you walked into? So what did I walk into? Yeah, like um, I get there, it's in the Redwood Forest, so absolutely gorgeous. And then um, all of it was made out of these slats of wood. And from my room, I could look over the Pacific. So I was... In the middle of the redwood forest, there were deer running around. Sometimes you would hear the call of coyotes. You would find these big neon yellow banana slugs. <laughs> Famously, uh, John Travolta wears a banana slug T-shirt in, in um, Pulp Fiction. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so, but then it was all people um, of these these diverse backgrounds, and a lot of people who were the first from their family to to go to university. You know, so people from like the hood in LA or like in Oakland. And, um, and so that was the early 2000s. I, uh, I befriended a lot of people from Oakland and I loved it and I'd go and hang out there all the time. And it was in the middle of what was called the hyphy era, which was kind of like the Bay's version of crunk or something like that. And it was very much based around sideshow culture, um, car, you know, people uh, ghost riding their whips down, like their, their really cool cars down the street and sort of dancing outside them, listening to music, right. uh, drug culture, you know, um, 
Hyphy, what, what's the origin of that? What, what does that refer to? Uh, man, I think it comes from the word just like hype or hyperactive. Okay. And I think that this rapper, Keek the Sneak, he, he came up with that because the Bay always comes up with its own slang, you know? So like E40, I think he originated that, that term like for shizzle or yeah, like wow. you, you smell me, you know, like all that lingo, like turf lingo. And, and so I was kind of thrown into that and it, was, it had a really particular look, you know, like uh, dudes with like long dreads, the stunner shades, gold teeth, like gold grills, you know. Uh, so I even had my teeth capped up. It was kind of funny. Oh, wow. Um, I, I also uh, want to ask you about the uh, friendship you formed uh, with the pop, well, now pop star, Marky Bassey. Um, oh, yeah. And this is one that would continue in your future trips to, to California afterwards. How, how did that, that happen? But tell me a bit about that friendship. Well, the thing was, man, like I was rapping a bit in Australia, but I was kind of embarrassed about it because people would make fun of the accent. You know, there was still that big accent debate between real Aussie and then the people who rapped American. And so I kind of kept it to myself. Uh, and, and I was, yeah, I was embarrassed, you know, and I was shy. And then I got to California and I saw that it was just ingrained in the culture over there. Like, you know, even people who didn't consider themselves MCs or rappers would be freestyling, you know. So I really came out of my shell start doing open mics. I'll be rocking a pink polo with my long uh, wavy ponytail at the time. I was a lot skinnier. <laughs> and, uh, and I think Kanye might have just come out sort of around that time. He would rock the pink polo and like in that Quali clip. And, you know, we thought that was fly back then. So <laughs> and so I'll do these open mics and, and I would do battles and stuff. And there was a young guy called um, Mark Griffin there. And he was a really amazing rapper. And he had gone to the same high school in Marin County that Tupac went to, you know, and uh, and he could sing, he could rap, uh, kind of like a dorky white dude, you know, like he, he, but we got along so well. And then he, he dropped out of college and he moved to L.A. to kind of pursue that whole Hollywood dream. And and he was in, in a band called The Transfer. And I used to go and stay with him. Like after I finished up at university, I started going back to L.A. and to the Bay all the time. And I would just sleep on his floor of this like super grotty flat where a bunch of musos were living. It was so grimy, man. And and we would like have to go to because you know the water is dirty out of the tap in LA. So we'd have to go and buy like the the big canisters of it at the at the Mexican shop around the corner. We would steal toilet paper from McDonald's, like you know. And then we would just go on these epic journeys, like walking along Sunset, just talking about our dreams, like talking about making music. Uh, making up raps, just talking about love, you know, and uh, and now, yeah, Marky e. Basie, like he's kind of blown up. Um, he's, you know, toured with Ty Dolla Sign. He's done songs with Kehlani. Like I saw Kendrick was tweeting about his EP. He's kind of like a like a blue eyed soul singer slash rapper just creative you know creative force sure sure i mean did you get the impression it's interesting like hanging out with future pop stars you know, 10 years before they blow up did you get that impression from from that that, that might be a possibility i don't think you ever really do you know you're, you're just you're caught up in in dreaming about it but like do you ever think that you'll see this guy on on telly or something <laughs> like that you know i i don't know about that we were just young dudes obsessed with with making music and and um, and and I don't think you fully conceive of of how it can happen in that way. Maybe he did. I think he probably did, but um, but no, I didn't. You mentioned um, E Forty and Kick to Sneak when we were talking about the the hyphen genre. Um, <laughs> what song uh, of theirs should we play off the back of that? Man, I think you got to play the classic hyphy song. Tell me when to go. <laughs> 
Rappers be getting they lingo from. That was E40 and Keek the Sneak with Tell Me When to Go, some old school hip hop retrieved from the record crate of writer and rapper Omar Musa. <laughs> self written and self performed play since Ali died is on at Sydney Festival now, but right now he is my guest on Out of the Box. Omar. 
Just over a decade ago, you'd uh, come second in the first ever Australian Poetry Slam at the State Library. And with that confidence, you enter into a competition called Realise Your Dream. Firstly, what was the prize? And, and tell me, like, why did you choose to enter? Yeah, Realise Your Dream was run by the British Council. And uh, it was for artists of all different disciplines, like, you know, filmmakers, painters, uh, writers, musicians. Um, from around Australia and the prize was I think it was about 10,000 bucks a plane trip to London and then setting you up in some type of mentorship program with someone from your discipline and some of the people I, I wish I could remember now but it's so long ago but some of the people had collaborated with really amazing artists and so I just thought wow this is cool like at a time in my life when again I felt like I needed a change like I think you need a change every few years just to break the circuit and switch things up and so I thought, cool, you know, I'd heard a lot about London, very multicultural place. A lot of my favourite artists were coming out of that. I was a big Dizzy Rascal fan, Roots Maneuver fan. Uh, then Amy Winehouse had just kind of come out. So it was, I was super naive, man. Like, I thought, you know, instead of just going over there, doing something kind of chilled out and, and living for like a month, I was like, oh, man, you know, I'm going to... I'm going to do a song with like Amy Winehouse, or like Lily Allen, you know, I was sure of it. Like I thought I was going to, you know, it was just, it was real, uh, real naive. But so I ended up going over there and instead of all that, you know, I, I ended up just uh, like working in the basement of a, a record, a great record label, but a very small one called Big Data, you know, and it was a subsidiary of Ninja Tune. So, you know, kind of iconic over there. But I, I was just like stacking shelves and doing all these menial tasks and making tea. And everyone there, like they, I don't know, they they, they just didn't pay much attention to me and, and they couldn't get that I was Australian. They kept just referring to me as like the Kiwi guy, like no one would learn my name. And, um, and I remember... The, the guy who was running the label, he, he was nice enough, but at a certain point I tried to show him some of my music because I was just like, you know, yeah, I was, yeah, I was, I was, I was on the grind, you know, and, uh, and I had this thing called the Massive EP uh, and, and I showed it to him and I remember him saying like, yeah, man, you know, it's cool and everything, but, but who would really want to hear an Australian rapper, you know? And I took that, that rejection. Like, I know it's an industry of rejection, but like I really took that to heart and, and I used that as fuel for my fire, like after after all of that uh for for many many years but when i was working there i was kind of uh yeah like i was always hoping to meet roots maneuver because he was signed to big data like yeah and he was one of my heroes i, w I want to get that to that in a second because you did uh eventually meet uh roots maneuver yeah. but before we jump forward uh to that uh, i want to ask you about the last few months uh that despite having no management experience you you got this job managing a pub called the princess of right of, of of Prussia, yeah. uh, which which probably like uh, is a, a, a encapsulates your entire London experience. Can you tell me about that pub and what happened there? Oh man! After my realize your dream, money ran out, which is kind of funny because people would say at the record label, like, "So why are you here exactly?" And I'd say, "Oh, I want a competition called Realize Your Dream." <laughs> and they're like, "Was this your this, dream?" This is your dream. I was like, oh, not, "Not exactly." But but anyway, like so after that, I ended up doing the real stereotypical thing. You know, I got a job in a pub just pulling beers. I was completely miserable. Like my music wasn't going anywhere. I'd do an open mic every now and then, and just felt like I couldn't make friends. I was like super lonely. It was so damn cold, and it's just a hustle like to get through everyday life in in London. You know, it's so expensive. So I was working in this pub, and the guys who owned it like they got like the lease for another pub sort of in between owners so it was only for about three months and they needed some poor sucker to 
to manage it. And so they asked me, they said, hey, have you got any management experience? And I was just like, dude, I'm the worst. Like I dropped out of maths in year 10. Like I can, I can barely do my like sums, you know. <laughs> and, and they're like, dude, it's easy. It's easy. Just like make a note of the money going in and the money going out. And then, you know, you'll see the balance. And I was just like, all oh, right. And they said, look, you can just live upstairs. You need a place to stay. You can live in the room upstairs. And so I did that. I managed this pub. You know, it was all these people during the financial crisis coming in, just absolutely miserable as well. I didn't like them. They didn't like me. I would just hang out with the with the chef guy, just smoking hash all day, and like he yeah. would be enacting MMA moves on me. Being yeah, well, like, what was he know? like? Cause, so he was living with you as well, the 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 chef. Or he was living in the same spot. Sometimes. Nah, nah. He, he was just there all the time, and and he would just constantly. Well, he was really cheering me up, you know, when I was going through hard times. Uh -huh. But he would also be. He was really into MMA, so he'd be like, "Oh, Omar, I know how to like kill a man in like fifty different ways." Like, you know, <laughs> and he'd so he'd, like put me in a, you know, some type of leg lock, and and then he was always playing pranks on me. So I'd just be, you know, going to put my shoes on drearily in the morning, and he'd have set mouse traps in it or something, you know, brutal, brutal stuff like what mouse traps in your shoe? Yeah, man. And if I was like <laughs> trying to. I don't know. I remember I was trying to uh, woo this girl, you know, I brought her back to my place and, and it just stunk so bad. Like my room stunk and I couldn't find the source of it. She eventually left because it was so gross. <laughs> and finally I looked under the bed and he'd made this mixture of old prawns and fish, like in a bowl with, <laughs> with aluminium foil over the top and poked holes in it. So it was just like a foul, stinky potpourri kind of thing and oh, then put man. it under the slats of my bed just to mess with me <laughs> yeah. I mean needless to say uh, <laughs> in London you didn't uh, realise your dream no not exactly <laughs> as as per the name of the program but what uh, I mean what was it like flying back to Australia after that man like I had a really hard last few months you know like I was kind of I don't know man I was just falling apart a bit I was taking drugs like my 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 uh, grandma and my auntie died within a week of each other. Uh, everything was just dreary and gloomy, you know. And and I just decided at that point, I'm going to move back to Australia. And uh, I remember flying back in and was sort of flying into Sydney. And I could see all the pools glittering in people's backyards. And it was the height of summer. And when I'd left, I was just drenched in rain, you know. And uh, when I'd left London, and, and I just knew when I flew back into Sydney, I was like, ah, this is... I've made the right decision, you know, yeah. and I landed and I went straight to the beach and then I saw someone post on Facebook that the Australian Poetry Slam was happening again. And I said to myself, I'm going to win it this time. I'm not going to come second. I just knew, like, I, it felt like it was my destiny, you know, it was kind of stupid, but that's what it felt like. And, um, and so, yeah, I went on and I won that at the Opera House and that kicked off a whole different life for me, man. Wow. You know, the literary kind of thing, like meeting people who are writers and novelists and playwrights. And thinking maybe I could do that. Do you think, uh, as an artist, you need experiences like London? Like you, you need to go through the hustle to kind of get where you need to go. Is, For sure, is that part of it? Yeah, definitely. Why? Like I mean, it can't just be, well because it it challenges you in an industry of rejection to figure out whether you're really about that life, whether it's something within you, whether you would be doing it, whether you were broke, destitute, whatever. And I think that for a lot of artists. That's a good question to ask yourself. And I think um, you have to know that you would be doing it regardless. You know, it's not about making it. It's not about making huge amounts of money um, 
or, or you know, realizing your dream in this grandiose way. It's about making art, and and that's something instinctual and within you. Yeah. Wow. Uh- But before we um, finish up this section, I've got to ask, um, uh, you did mention earlier, you flagged earlier that while you were in London, signed to the record label that you were working for was your hero, uh, the English rapper and producer Roots Maneuver, or one of your heroes. Um, You encountered him once. How did that go down? Yeah, well, people at the label would say, oh, Rodney, you know, Roots Maneuver. Oh, yeah, he's always around. You can tell, you know, he's got the most beautiful voice, like crazy voice. And uh, and so I've been looking forward to it the whole year. I was like, it will make it worth it, you know, all this crap I'm going through. And then one time I was at this kind of weird avant-garde, like spoken word poetry evening with a few people, and they were watching a guy called, his name was Infinite Lives, and he was a really obscure <laughs> rapper that was signed also to that label. And he'd done this whole song about lactating men, like that was his kind of quote-unquote hit. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the dude at the label like loved this guy. I just could never quite figure it out. I was just like bamboozled by it, but I thought I'd go along. And then I was at the bar, I remember, and I had these like two massive glasses of red wine, and I spun around really hastily and I just smashed them both glasses all over a guy behind me wearing like a really nice crisp white button-up shirt and it just went entirely down his front. And I looked up and, yeah, it was Roots Maneuver. No! And, and I kind of just like looked down really sheepishly at the two broken glasses in my hand and then look up at him and I just go... I'm a massive fan of yours, bro. <laughs> like that. And he, and he goes, um, uh, thanks, thanks a lot, bro. Like, thanks a lot. And then kind of just like looks down himself, tries to wipe some of the red wine off. He doesn't even get his drink. He just leaves straight away. And then that was my one experience meeting Roots Maneuver. What should we play in tribute to the man? Oh, man, one of the classics, Movements. Every time I hear this song, it brings me back to that time in London. This homegrown rain, bonafide, what you hear, tis the sound of pain. But the pain leads to gain, so we dare not stagnate, we elevate to that next day. Motion divine, glisten like crystal ball and stand tall with this knowledge and overstanding. Enterprise landing, bringing them new brands above. Yes, we come proper, we potencies. Ain't no blood in my body, it's liquid soul in my vein. I dance on the tin line, the sane and the brains, and it's all crisp. Once I get neatly in the cipher, trapped like picnic to the pipe of the pie. As this natural mystic blows through the air, these lessons of life become crystal clear. Precision of my vision is idle. Separating shocks from the blessed is vital. Now I can smell a rat coming from a mile round the corner. One time I warn y'all, twice you catch cough, no, we won't stop with you, D. You satanics, you fools can't recruit me. Not now, while there. Movements for mech, typhoons brew. Strong anchors drive them or still coast true. Movements for mech, typhoons brew. Strong anchors drive them or still coast true. Left, right, left. Right. right. 
left, right, left, right. I slap the bacon out your mouth, dance upon your sunny, rolling with your regiment. God bless army, how the hell you're going to stop this tide from steady coming? Running kitchen tune with the element, set speed, we proceed. Traction for action, hot one, two, five. Government boots get dashed to the side, two rank, two snide now. Oh, that they tried to disguise, I can still recognize devil works when I see it. We got disciples, keep we got friends. I always had a hate for what them we got's defend. It fiend for that crack, ain't no one's attacks. We might run home and smoke a brown bag of seed. Best believe that these times is treacherous. And I know not how else I'm supposed to act, but stand close to Koja Roots fight. See me getting dead with that two-step shuffle. Haggling a hustle for the coals. Raining with that roots type terror. Figuring up your weak hearted error. We build, move, and prove that we don't suffer fools. Movements for mech, typhoons rule. Strong and Kushai, them must still coast true. Movements for mech, typhoons rule. Strong and Kushai, them must still coast true. Left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right. Movements for mech, typhoons rule. Strong and Kushai, them must still coast true. Movements for mech. Typhoons through, young and good side demo still coast true. Left, right, left, right, left, right. That was Roots Maneuver with movements of his 1999 record brand new second hand. Omar Musa brought it into FBI Radio today. He is my guest on Out of the Box. Omar, you mentioned earlier uh, about your father's poetry and uh, uh, eventually, I mean, in the image of that, you start to make uh, poems and that becomes Mm -hmm. an important part of your creative output. Can you tell me a little bit how you kind of how you fell into that? Oh man, it's hard to say exactly when it started because, you know, my parents told me that even when I was really little, I used to arrange the alphabet blocks in like certain patterns and stuff. So wow. Who knows, that might have been some type of proto-poetry, but I don't know, man. It was more just like a diary, you know. I would I would sit there and I would write little thoughts and ideas and images down and then sometimes when my parents looked at it, they said, oh, you know, this is kind of, I don't know, it's quite visual. Like, it's almost like a poem or something, mm. more than like a diary entry. And, and then in primary school, I had a great English teacher, as is often the way, who called Ms. Patterson, who exposed me to like all sorts of different forms of poetry. And I just took to it like a, a duck to water, you know. It was just, it was some way, I was going to say it was some type of therapy or expressing my pain or frustration. But you know what? Originally, it was just fun. It was just a fun way of expressing my thoughts. And I try to remember that joy now, you know, and, and sometimes like you try, sometimes we take ourselves so seriously as adults, you know, and, and take what we're writing so seriously and what we're thinking, put ourselves under pressure, but we forget that joy and that reckless abandon and love of words. So I try and keep 
returning to that if I can. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. I mean, now it's obviously a very different context from when you were much younger. You've got three poetry books, a bunch of hip-hop albums, and a novel, plus the show you're currently running. Do you... Do you think about what drives you to create today? Is that something that you're reflecting on? Well, yeah, it is. It is. I mean, I think it's it's something within me. Like, I'm compelled to write for some reason. Uh, there have been times where I've thought to myself, you know, I'm just going to give it up and not and not do it anymore. But then I feel lost, like I don't have an anchor. But what I'm thinking about more is is how I turned my passion into a profession. And there are pitfalls associated with that. You can lose the love, you know, when when you put yourself under too much pressure, when there's expectations based on the stuff you've done before, expectations that you impose on yourself, you know, trying to... It's always dangerous when you start getting critics and readers and people um, with their opinions, which, of course, is a huge honour and privilege that people are even relating to your work, but then it can start pulling you in these different directions. And if you're not careful, yeah, you lose that love. And so, you know, sometimes I do think... I'll never quit writing, but maybe I could quit it as my main profession, you know, mm-hmm. and find something else. What that is, I don't know. Uh, um, Omar, perhaps, you know, the, the pinnacle of all your creativity or of your creative career, for at least from an outsider's perspective, for a resume that has everyone from Horror Show to Kate Tempest and onwards, uh, you support Gil Scott Heron in the German city of Munich. Uh, but this is a story that starts a few months before that concert on a two-carriage train in that city. Can you take me there? Yeah, yeah. So I'd won the Australian Poetry Slam, and as I said, like all sorts of things were popping out of that. And, and one thing that came up was that the Munich Ministry of Culture contacted me and said that they were going to hire two carriages of a train and set up a bar in one and a mic in the other and then pick up people on a train platform and ride around Munich all night Um, picking up and letting off uh, passengers as poets from every single continent performed their work. And so I was the kind of lone Australian representative. And at the end of it, a lady called Patricia from the ministry said to me, you know, potentially in a few months, uh, we might be bringing Gil Scott Heron out here and maybe you could do support. And I don't know if she was just like kind of gassing me up with that one, but, you know, my ears pricked up. And I was just kind of relentless. Like I was a pain after that. Like I would send them a message every couple of weeks being like, so what's going on with Gil Scott Heron? What's going on with Gil Scott Heron? And in looking back on it now, I was probably jeopardizing my chances more than anything by being so uncool about it. But um, eventually she was just like, look, you know, Gil has had some, he's had problems in life. You know, he's had drug problems and, and he's not very reliable. And so um, we're not even sure we're going to be able to bring him out here. But then maybe a month before it eventually happened, I get this message and she says, yep, we're going to get you on the support. Come out. They flew me out. Uh, I landed. And on the same day, I I got up and performed with him. But what was cool, right, was that I was performing with a guy called Soweto Kinch, who's a, a tenor sax player slash rapper from Birmingham in England. And I'd met him before through the hip hop scene over there. And, um, He's a brilliant sax player. But what was really cool was that when Soweto was a kid, his dad brought him to a Gil Scott Heron concert. And the sax player for Gil gave Soweto a little book on how to play the sax that he took with him. And then that's how he learned, you know, originally, right? And so we get to this huge hall 
it was a it was an ex train station converted into a concert hall called Muffathalle um in in Munich and um and the sax player for Gil Scott Heron was the same dude and Soweto goes oh my god that's the same guy and he's about to go up to, he's about to go up to him and say you know tell him this story and just before he can the guy comes over to him and he says um hey i saw you i saw you up on stage before you're making some really good sounds out of that horn son you know wow <laughs> yeah and so it was fully life coming you know full circle amazing do you think you remembered it no but then we kicked it with him afterwards and sure, and Soweto sure. told him the whole story and he was spun out as well it was just beautiful and then Gil you know i mean what a voice like he he was very skinny he you know was missing teeth and just had lived a hard life this was soon soon before his death is that right yeah it was probably even less than a year before he, he eventually passed and and it was almost lucky that we got the privilege of performing before him because the night before in Brixton he hadn't even turned up at the gig you know there were like a bunch of people waiting and so he turned up he gave us a nod you know he kind of said like yeah you guys sounded good up there or whatever you know but he uh you know he got on stage and he was singing his heart out and the lyrics were just on point and that voice was so heartbreaking like people were crying you know and then and then at a certain point he said you know it's 20 years since I've been here in Munich and I hope I can see you all again very, very soon. I'm not going to leave it that long this time. But we all knew, you know, that he didn't have that much longer to live. And that was true. What's, what Gil Scott Heron track should we play off the back of that, Omar? Ah, uh, the classic Pieces of a Man. Jagged jigsaw pieces Tossed about the room I saw my grandma sweeping With her old straw broom She didn't know what she was doing She could hardly understand That she was really sweeping up Pieces of a man Saw my daddy meet the mailman And I heard the mailman say Now don't you take this letter too hard now, Jimmy They've laid off nine others today But he didn't know he was saying he could hardly understand that he was only talking to him. 
pieces of a man I saw the thunder and heard the lightning and felt the burden of his shame and for some unknown reason Never turn my way Pieces of that letter Were tossed about the room And now I hear the sound of sirens Come knifing through But they don't know what they are doing They could hardly understand That they're only arresting Pieces of a man I saw him go to pieces Some early Gil Scott Heron on your FBI radio airwaves. That track, Pieces of a Man, curated by Omar Musa, my guest on Out of the Box today. Omar, when I first contacted you about coming on this show, I got an uh, auto-reply email uh, saying that you were away uh, traveling the remote regions of Indonesia. What were you doing there? Man, well, my family comes from Borneo in East Malaysia, but, you know, a lot of your listeners will know Borneo, fourth largest island in the world. Half of it is Indonesian, half of it's Malaysian. So I want to go to the Indonesian side. Uh, A lot of my family haven't even done that, you know and go right up the river. Like I took a public ferry, slept on on the deck with all the other people as traders were coming on and off with, you know, palm sugar and goods to trade. And then that was the main artery back in the day from the ocean people, like right into the interior, up into the highland tribes up there, you know, uh, the Dayak people, headhunters. And so, uh, so, so I was just up there, you know, I was just hanging out. Wow. Yeah. So you, you identify as born in Australia. So this is kind of going back to your roots. But I mean, I, I know very little about Borneo. Can you kind of paint a picture of the island for me? Mm. Well, very, very diverse in terms of um, ethnicities. Uh, there's probably over 40, maybe 50 tribes there, indigenous tribes, uh, all different languages and, and cultural practices very rich in its biodiversity. You know, there's all sorts of uh, amazing animals there that don't exist anywhere else in the world. Pygmy elephants, sun bears, um, orangutans, you know, uh, proboscis monkeys. And uh, and it's also a place that's kind of been, been ravaged, uh, you know, by, by logging, by the oil industry, uh, corruption. Uh, you know, Malaysian Borneo was, it's sort of often considered a bit of a backwater, but a place that's just been pillaged for its resources uh, by the mainland. Mm. And it's also a place with an incredibly rich indigenous culture. And uh, I was uh, amazed to learn your your father comes partly from the Saluk people and they uh, feared pirates. 
Yeah, yeah. So there's quite a, a, a thing between the land people and the sea people, you know, and in my heritage, I've got both. Like, So my grandma is Kadayan, which is from the border of, of Sarawak, Sabah and Brunei. And that's uh, sort of in the in the jungle areas, really. Uh, they were rice uh, farmers and and also poets, though. The women, it was quite a matriarchal society. And so the ladies, like my grandma, you know, she never even learned how to read or write, but she used to be brought out at weddings to recite poems that she had made up, you know, in her own mind. And then my dad, uh, my grandfather, biological grandfather was Suluk, who are very, yeah, very feared pirates uh, in, in the region. <laughs> a lot of people don't like them, you know, like even when you say now in, in Sabah, like, oh, I'm Suluk, people kind of like look at you twice, um, you know, but they were like amphibious warriors. You know, there's the headhunters from the interior and then we were like the amphibious warriors, you know. Uh, so tell tell me about uh, your family in Borneo. What was what was it like meeting them or reconnecting with some, meeting others on this trip? Yeah, I mean, I've always had a, a good connection with them, and especially since like Facebook came out. You know, uh, social media can be so bad, but it can be also such a good tool for connection. So with my cousins and everything, I'm always in touch with them, and uh, and I try and um, you know send send messages to my grandparents and stuff and I try to go back like once a year to Malaysia and, and meet the family. So I've got a good a good connection with them. Um, but, you know, it's something that I'm always deepening, always trying to enrich and explore. Uh, and it's really important to me to do that, you know. Uh, you spent some time in an area uh, called the Barrio Highlands. Yeah. Can you tell me what's significant about that particular region? Oh, man. I mean, the Barrio Highlands, they're like, they're in Sarawak, so a different state to where my family is. Um, but it's right in the middle of virgin, pristine rainforest. You know, as I said, a lot of the land has been ravaged. And when you fly over it, it looks almost like a plucked chicken or something like that. But when you go to the Barrio Highlands, the Kalabit people there, the indigenous people, there's only 6,000 of them, uh, ex-headhunters as well. Um, very Christian now, but they uh, have negotiated a lot of their land back and um, and they've got this pristine jungle and I got to go out in there with people hunting and they've even, you know, got their own form of kind of language where they'll, where they'll um, bind little leaves into a pattern to show like, oh, there's three people heading this way hunting for boar or, you know, whatever. Um, and so my friend from Sydney, Rose, is actually Kalabit. I didn't realise this. And so... She knew I was going to be in um, Borneo and she invited me to come and hang out with her family and stay with her family. And it was, you know, a huge honor to, to go out there and and um, see this indigenous culture, people so proudly rejuvenating their culture um, and, and looking after the land in a way that it should be for the rest of Borneo. Uh, but you know, I was, there was crazy stuff like people, you know, I went into the blowpipe competition, like, you know, so they used to hunt with a long wooden blowpipe with a, with a bayonet at the end and shoot a poison dart into a deer or a boar and then chase it through the jungle by foot for like four hours until the boar kind of, you know, <laughs> tired and then they would wow. stab it <laughs> to death. And so, you know, I went in the blowpipe competition. I was an outsider, so they were always dragging me up <laughs> to do line dancing. Who would have thought in the heartland of Borneo they would love country music so much? <laughs> well, um, I, I There mean, was a pig lifting competition. I didn't go in that. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow, amidst the indigenous culture, and this is, you know, we're in one of the most remote parts of the world here, you find yourself 
doing karaoke. What's this story? I mean, look, man, all over Asia, karaoke is a big deal. And I, I feel like this is part of connecting with my Asianness was like getting into the karaoke. And so, yeah, of course, I got dragged on stage and I completely butchered a rendition of uh, Total Eclipse of the Heart. Didn't realize like three hooks in one. You need a few people to do that one. But then I thought, look, I'm going to knock it out of the park. Firstly, with a rousing rendition of Gangster's Paradise by Coolio, classic. Then, Hey Jude by the Beatles, you know, sort of... This is all against the backdrop of the Barrio Highlands. Barrio Highlands. Jungle, yeah. The Barrio Highlands. Barrio Highlands. Jungle, yeah, yeah. One of the remote, most remote parts of Asia. And, uh, and then I finally thought I'd knock it out of the park with a, with a fine rendition of Fill Me In by Craig David. How about we play out with that now, Emma? We must. <laughs> Emma, thank you very much for being my guest on Out of the Box. Today. Thank you, bro. I got something to say, got something to say. All right. Can you feel me Come on. Next door, when her parents went out, she phoned, say, hey, boy, come on right around. So I knock at the door, you were standing with a bottle of red wine, ready to pour, dressed in a long black satin, laced to the floor. So I went in, then we sat down, stopped kissing, caressing, told me about jacuzzi, sounded interesting. So we jumped right in, all calls diverted to answer phone. kind of cool, but they were the fine line between me and you. We were just doing things young people in love do. Parents trying to find out what we were up to. Saying, why were you creeping down late last night? But then I see two shadows moving in your bedroom light. Now you're dressed in black. When I left, you were dressed in white. Can you feel me? Clear. And she'd ask me to come out I'd say, hey girl, come right around So she knocked at the door I was standing with the keys in my hand To the 4 by 4 Jumped in my ride Chicken that nobody saw The we went in We got down, bound, bound to the rhythm So it was early morning Thought we better be leaving So I gave you my jacket for you to hold Told you to wear it Cause you felt cold I mean, me and I Break the rules I weren't trying to play your mom and dad for fools We were just doing things Young people in love do Parents trying to find out What we were to Saying why can't you keep your promises No more saying you'll be home By 12 controlling in at 4 Out with the girls We're leaving with the boy next door Can you feel me
I'm not 